This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. For the thrift savings plan, you might say things are up. Enrollments, fund performance, even the number of people with a million dollars in their accounts. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman and I discussed the latest trends with the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board's Director of External Affairs, Kim Weaver. 2023 was actually a record year. We hit a record for our full match for um, FERS participants at 86.8%, and for BRS participants, uh, 84.9%. That's particularly notable for the BRS participants since they just started in January of 2018. That program just started, and it really shows the um, magic of auto-enrollment right? If you auto-enroll somebody at 5%, um, and that's going to continue to march up for both both populations, but particularly for BRS. And then we've hit a record in terms of the number of participants who um, have some money in Roth. We've got about 2.5 million participants, or 36% of our participant base has some Roth money. I guess if someone isn't careful, they could have a higher income when they retire if they put a lot away in the TSP. It's well, fit- you can put a lot away. And if you're putting, especially if you're you're young and you're starting, if you do uniform services, for example, and you keep your money in Roth, then yeah, when you take your money out, it's, it is tax, uh, tax-free. And so that's really the benefit of Roth. And it's particularly the benefit of Roth for any of our younger participants. And Kim, you'd mentioned that, you know, auto enrollment is a really big uh, indicator, really important way to kind of make sure that people are contributing a lot of their earnings towards the TSP. I know that in 2020, TSP changed the auto enrollment rate. So right. those who are contributing less than 5%, what are the ways that you try to uh, encourage or help participants get that matching, the full matching rate from the government? We have a number of outreaches, and in fact, we have a social scientist on staff, and one of the things that she's really focused on, she gave a presentation to the board last last month, was um, various ways we've tested messaging as to what resonates most with people and what drives behavior, and so um, we are constantly testing various messages. We'll, we'll, we'll take a group of people and keep a control group who get no email and then test various messages, see which one drives action, and then use that message for a larger group. Um, And that's always something that we are looking at as to ways that people who aren't contributing the full 5% are aware of the benefits for them of, of doing that. But we're also aware that people have other expenses, right? There's, there is life, there's food, there's rent, all of those things. And that, that sometimes gets in the way of saving for retirement. Well, give us an example of a type of message that you tested and that resulted in some change. Well, there's several different things. For example, as our social scientist calls it, it's temporal reframing. In other words, do you want to start saving $5 a day 
$35 a week or $150 a month. All of those are essentially, of course, the same total amount, but $5 a day was four times more effective and it eliminated gaps across um, income levels. So a lower income person was as likely to respond to that as a higher income person. For example, for someone earning your amount of money, $50,000, 5% is about $7 a day. That was one. And what we found was that dollars per day was slightly better than leaving money on the table, which has been the standard message that all financial institutions use. And that was about just a couple, 3% higher than the other ones we tested. But the average increase was about $80 a month. And so by age 65, that would be an extra $40,000 um, in their TSP account. So again, there's any number of ways to try and attack that that specific population. But we also look at other people, you know, who are getting closer to retirement. You know, did you know that you can make up catch up contributions? There's any number of, of messaging that we do for our participants to try and get them prepared for a comfortable retirement. And will you plan on, say, testing different messages across different age groups, such as as the boomers age out, you know, that message about catch up versus the millennial and the Generation Z, the really young ones coming into government? Yes, all of those. And what we find, and it's not surprising, we find this with our financial wellness, our participant satisfaction, that younger participants are are less engaged with the TSP in general. And that's not surprising. I mean, 21 year olds can't imagine retirement. You know, they can't imagine being 30, let alone retiring sometime in their 60s. So trying to engage with that particular group is challenging, again, for for everybody, simply because they're focused on on other, other issues. You know, Kim, on the other end of things, uh, I know that one really popular topic with the TSP is how many millionaires are in the program. Do you have the latest numbers for that? I do. As of the end of calendar year 2023, there are 116,827 millionaires and they have been contributing to the TSP for an average of 28.91 years. And I would contrast that with last year, uh, 2022, there were 76,888 millionaires, and they had been contributing for 29.5. And of course, the difference between those two is largely driven by the performance of the stock market. The stock market in 2023, especially um, toward the end of the calendar year, really took off. Um, there was about a 25% return for the C fund, a 25% return for the S fund. And so that's what drove the numbers of millionaires up for calendar year 2023. And I guess from that number that you mentioned, the, there's 40,000 more, 50,000 more at the end of last year than there were at the end of the year before, is that a lot of people were really close to just that million mark. Whereas that, the- that is, yes it's always the case that people sort of um, trend upward 
we're always adding new participants. So the number of participants who have less than 50,000 will always be a growing number, but then presumably people move up the ladder, so to speak, um, both up and down in relation to savings and and the, the market returns. We are speaking with Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs for the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Let's talk about some of the specific funds. The iFund had some changes and alterations. Let's review what went on there. The board in November approved a change to the iFund benchmark. And the benchmark um, is is what the the fund follows, what we track. So as many people know, the the C fund follows the S&P 500. People are familiar with that. The I fund gets a little more esoteric. We currently um, track what's called the MSCI EFA, which is Europe, Australasia, and Far East. Not easy to say. The one we're moving to is that much less easy to say. It's the MSCI All Country World ex-USA, ex-China, ex-Hong Kong investable market index. So what that does, what the new index does for us is it adds emerging markets without Hong Kong or China, given the X's, um, and it adds in um, Canada, and it also adds in some small cap stocks in developed markets. So all in all, we go from about 800 uh, 800 stocks to about 5,600 stocks. Um, And we're covering now about 90% of the non-U.S. equity market. So it expands uh, your ability. It expands the ability to get returns while not greatly increasing risk, which is obviously what we're always trying to do. And just a technical question, when you do sign up with a new index, then the distribution among the stocks of the fund has to follow that index closely. Yes, there will be a transition period. We're going to be moving to this new index in 2024. And so during the transition period, we're not going to be tracking the old index exactly, and we won't be tracking the new index exactly, because there will be a period where we're shedding shedding positions in the old index and adding positions in new countries. So that will be a period of time where we're going to be monitoring the fund managers to see how they're doing, but it will be um, a different time for participants and and us as we, as we manage that transition. And just two real quick follow-up questions on that. Was the choice of that new index because of its historical performance? It actually was. What we saw was that over um, the past 20 years, the new index outperformed the old index. Um, Again, past performance is no guarantee of future performance, right? But that's what you have to look at. And you also have to look again about diversification by adding in emerging markets, by adding in Canada, small cap equities, that that helps our participants. And the other quick follow-up is as you transition, there's a lot of transactions that'll take place, moving funds from one place to another. Is there a one-time big expense burden on changing over? 
There shouldn't be, no. There will be transactions, but we are working with the fund managers, we have two, as you know, that will do their best to minimize any minimize the transaction cost as best they can. There will be some, but it's not going to be a big hit. One other quick follow-up about the iFund changes. I know that's something that you guys have been looking at for uh, several years, and it did during the the previous uh, administration get a little bit of pushback. So can you explain or clarify the decision behind excluding China and Hong Kong from uh, from that fund? We routinely, uh, every five to seven years, the board retains an investment consultant to look both at the funds that we offer, that's one study, and then the, um, the uh, benchmarks that we follow. And the benchmark study was done in 2023, and the advancement consultant came back and said that changing the iFund index would benefit our participants. Um, and this index was something that w- is actually a, a new index. It was just created in June of 2023. And I'm going to quote the investment advisor here who said, operational complexity has increased when investing in emerging markets in recent years, given a range of events such as investment restrictions on sensitive Chinese technology sectors, delisting of Chinese companies, and sanctions on Russian securities due to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So all of those unforeseen circumstances and uncertainties can cause performance and volatility swings. That's what the board was relying on. There was That was their focus, their fiduciaries, and they have to operate solely in the interests of our participants. And let's talk about the website and the customer experience. That was probably more of a 22 issue than a 23 issue, I think. But you're still Thankfully, working on yes. it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely true. Um, 22, as as we've discussed, was, was not um, as smooth as we would have wanted for our participants. But our customer satisfaction rate right now is 90.9%. And the satisfaction with our phones is uh, almost 93%. And we're measuring all of our channels. We've got the ability to go online. We've got a mobile app now. The phone, we have a bot. We have live chat. We have email. And um, our record keeper and we are monitoring all those channels, monitoring the satisfaction with the individual channels. And then we're... The, the the live chat and the email are used the least. So we're sort of looking at that. Are there ways that we can make those more user-friendly? Is there a barrier or is it just people prefer the other other methods? You know, we, we're not really sure about that one way or the other, but it's something we're going to be looking at. I know that in 2023, there was one update for the Converge program with uh, Accenture which was they added this loan tracker feature uh, in my account. Are you aware of any other upcoming potential plans in terms of you know tweaks that are going to be made to the new system moving forward? Well, we're looking at things like um, improving the calculators or potentially adding calculators. We have one that I have to say I find it's you have to log into your TSP My account, and it's a retirement income modeler. And you can really 
play with it and have fun with it to put in what you think the returns would be, what you, how long you think, how long you want your money to last. You have a lot of variables to work with. And so I highly recommend that. And it's useful for people in any stage of their career um, because it helps you determine how much you need to save or if you're closer to retirement, how much you can expect, how long you can expect your money to last. So we're looking to see if there are other calculators that could also be useful for participants. And one small piece of good news is the change in administrative expenses that was reported during the most recent meeting. Yes. As you know, the FRTAB, the board that runs the TSP, we're self-funded. And so our participants pay for the operation of the agency, pay for the operation of the plan. Um, And last year, our net administrative expense was 4.8 basis points or 48 cents per thousand. In calendar year 2022, that was 5.8 or 58 cents per thousand. And the reason it went up or it, it was higher was because in 2022, we were running the legacy record keeping system and the, the new record keeping system. We decommissioned the old system. And so in 2023, we're running just the current record keeping system. And that's what's saving participants 10 cents per thousand on their money invested. And that's Kim Weaver, Director of External Affairs for the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. We'll take a short break, and when we return, why a partial government shutdown, still a distinct possibility, might affect women federal employees more profoundly than it will affect men. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Tammen. With a lapse in funding still a distinct possibility and therefore a federal shutdown, I checked in with Pamela Richards, the national president of Federally Employed Women, or FEW. And FEW is saying, and you're saying, that a government shutdown doesn't necessarily affect everyone equally because women have concerns sometimes that men don't. Correct. Absolutely. Well, tell us more. Yes. So with the government shutdown, uh, it affects women because some women with the single parent households, they are affected by possibility of furlough, possibility of not being able to take care of their financial responsibilities, not being able to take care of their child care uh, for their child. So it affects a lot when it comes to our our women and, and our membership. So what's your message to Congress then? What would you have them do? So one thing we would like for them to do is, as you've already stated, is to move past it and pass a budget that will allow for us to continue to work as uh, federally employed women. Last fall, few submitted a request to Congress imploring them to act on one of their options to end the entire annual government shutdown process. And at that time, there were several uh, avenues put forward to get rid of those temporary stop gaps, get rid of the whole shutdown conversation. And obviously that did not happen, but we would love for a bipartisan agreement to take place to end the government shutdown. And I cannot speak for all federal managers, but I am certain that many would agree with me on this, or federally employed women on that. And a lot of federally employed women are not managers, and therefore they are at the lower levels of the pay scale. And that's much more 
disproportionately difficult for people that don't earn that much to be out of work, even though the paycheck will come eventually. During the time there is no paycheck, it can be really difficult. Right, right. And those that are at, well, let's just say the bottom of the total pole, but you're lower level GS workers, this has created a heavy financial impact on them as it relates to having to worry about a government shutdown from year to year. And now, of course, the government will be in a fresh continuing resolution, this one lasting till March, operating under the CR year after year. That's, I think the general public doesn't understand why that's difficult for those trying to keep the government operating on a day-to-day basis. Tell us how it affects things. I'll look at it from a human capital piece. Every day, the federal government employees work hard to run the operations, and regardless of the political climate, putting their livelihoods on the line is unconscionable. There are two different deadlines that are affecting two sets of workers, and they are associated with budgets. This creates major inequities as you watch operations unfold. In the shutdown, federal agencies must uh, discontinue all non-essential discretionary functions until funding legislation is passed and signed into law. Essential services continue to function, as do mandatory spending programs. So shutdowns force agencies to draft and redraft budget plans. These are not minor undertakings. We all talk about eliminating waste and wasteful processes. No one is talking about waste of time and other resources that comes with these financial gymnastics we do whenever we approach a government shutdown. Now, the CR, though, means that you can't do anyhow what you had budgeted for and spent all that time planning for in the 18 months prior to when you thought a budget would start. But instead, you got a CR. So you're kind of operating like last year. Correct. And and this takes the government out of the opportunity of competing and saving on different services and resources by not being available, not having those funds available. And so what else is on Fuse Mind these days? Well, Fuse Mind is, is, is preparing our membership and uh, being able to listen to our membership and what issues that concerns them. Uh, being able to share with uh, congressional representatives that, you know, when women have lost their jobs, even in a uh, temporarily a greater risk of other things could happen, such as increase in gender-based violence, struggles with their mental health if they're out having to worry about work. Many women are running, like I stated earlier, single-parent households, and there's no safety net for anyone that's living from paycheck to paycheck. So we're looking for the government to, you know, continue to work toward a bipartisan agreement, Right and do it quickly and not put the jeopardy in the lives of our membership or federal employees with not being able to receive their paychecks from uh, year to year. Pamela Richards, president of Federally Employed Women, FEW. And that's it for this week's FedLife. We'll return next week with more for your professional and financial life. Until then, I'm Tom Tammen, and this is Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.